Well, as I stated, let's take our Bibles and turn over to the book of Second Corinthians. And uh, last week, we saw a tremendous study on the life of Moses. And yet, as good as that was, and as informative as that was, in truth, you know, it's just one small sliver, just one small dimension of his life. Uh, and there's so much to learn from him. Paul used him in this chapter, and that's why we went back and looked at it. Paul used him uh, and his experiences on Mount Sinai. And he used all of that to show us and what Moses went through uh, and the end result of his life to show us about what we should be in ministry. Uh, I always enjoy the story of reading about Moses and in his encounter with God, you know. And we saw the four aspects of his life. We broke it down. And truthfully, you know, everything in the Bible, every book in the Bible, the Bible itself uh, is a, has a breakdown to it. I think that's a mistake that many people make when they try to study the Bible. Uh, you know, I, I say it many times, the Bible is like one of those uh, 5,000-piece picture puzzles that you go buy at some place and then stay up all night and put it together. It's got, uh, you know, it's, you look, dump them all out on the table, and there's 5,000 pieces to it. And they're all in a big pile. And nothing really makes any sense. And yet, when you look at that pile of puzzle pieces, that's exactly what the Bible's like. And what helps you with that when you want to put it together, when you finally want to get it all working for you, is I've always just looked at the picture on the box. It's important to understand the picture that you're putting together. It helps you visualize what you're doing when you see a picture of the completed process. And that's why... The Bible is so important that you, you learn the overall understanding of the Bible. So many people try to get into the Bible and figure it out without understanding the big picture of the Bible. And, of course, that's exactly uh, the wrong way to do it. And you never learn the Bible that way, just like you'll never get the picture put together that way. Then the second thing you do is you separate all the pieces out and you find all the ones on the, you got the corner pieces, the, the framework pieces. And you're going to find that when you put a 5,000-piece picture puzzle together, it goes a lot faster, even though it never goes really fast. It goes a lot faster when you frame out the ends first, the framework, and then once you get that done, then you add to it. And as you add to it, looking at the picture in the box, you can match the pieces up, and in a process of time, the puzzle is complete. That's the way the Bible is. And when we talk about the men in the Bible, when we talk about the aspects of ministry. When we talk about all of the things that we're talking about, uh, we teach you the basic framework of the Bible. We show you how to frame it out, understanding the things that, uh, that really make the Bible understandable and then understand the picture of it and then work from there to put it all together. This is why uh, Paul used uh, the life of Moses. And we broke him down into four sections and, uh, because that's what you do. You break the Bible down, you break the books of the Bible down, you break the chapters of the Bible down, and then when you want to study a man's life, and there's some tremendous guys to study, and women too, the way you do it is to always, don't just look at, a, at the entire story. That story will break down into, into different sections. In Moses' case, it broke down into four. You should have those now. And we remember that the reason why Moses picked him, or God picked him, and Paul picked him to, uh, to display ministries because uh, of the burning bush experience, you know. There's where he had his encounter with God. 
And, and I might say to you, and this is true of everybody here today if you're saved, everybody here today that is saved will have a burning bush experience in your life. Oh, it won't be like maybe Moses when he was up there and he looked over there and saw this bush burning but not being consumed, which is a picture of the nation of Israel, by the way. And God spoke out of that bush. I'm not saying that it's going to happen that way to you. But what I am saying is this. Every child of God, at some point in your life, God will meet with you like he met with Moses, and he'll call you like he called Moses. In Moses' case, he responded to that call. Your case may be different. But he, you will have that experience. And I, I couldn't pinpoint it in your life. I'm not saying that all of you have had it already. But I am saying this. At some point in your life, God will meet you and he will lay himself out to you and he'll call you to do something for him. And uh, your doing it or not doing it will be based on uh, just like the story of Moses. It's an incredible study, an incredible story. And uh, we saw how that when he came down from that mountain, after he got the law the second time, that his face was shining from being in the presence of Almighty God. The glory of God was on his face and in his face, and everybody saw it. We also saw how that when he came down from that mountain and started talking to the ordinary people, Aaron and the people around him, they were afraid of him. I mean, here was a guy that went up one way and came back something else. Isn't that so true when you have a real encounter with God? Bible says you're a new creature in Christ Jesus if you're truly saved. Old things are passed away, all things become new. And that is a great story there because it illustrates that when you really do have the power of God in your life, it will also be in your face. And that's what God uses, and that's how uh, people uh, see the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also studied how that the people were afraid of him. So what did he do? We talked about this. They put a veil on his face. And that veil on his face is a picture of him. We talked about it last week kind of dialing it down a couple notches where uh, you're not uh, uh, going after everybody and saying things that you probably shouldn't say and basically scaring people uh, with your zealous attitude of not knowing how to control your own spirit. But uh, absolutely incredible material for us who are trying to learn to minister the Word of God. And it answers so many questions <clears throat> because throughout this study now, and I know we're studying the book of 2 Corinthians, but you want to keep focused on the fact that what we're accomplishing here, we're accomplishing for many of you learning insight into dealing with people. And today, as last week, uh, you, you learned these are the things you need to learn. Because this study last week that we looked at answers so many questions why people uh, claim to be saved. We've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. The Lord's kind of just like a a slow-moving rain front just kind of camped over the church here, and we've been dealing with it. This is why answer so many questions, why so many of God's people who claim to be saved, and yet in reality they're empty. And it just gives you great insight. And it's dealing with people. These are the insights you need to have. We learned a great lesson that our face shows where our heart and our body are at. We learned a new word, the word countenance. And uh, we talked about how that when you have God in your heart, you know, God's countenance, uh, your countenance shows that. We know now that the epistle written on our hearts that we talked about in chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 3, that are read in, of all men, are now the result of several things. And we're kind of been building this things. Spending time alone with God. 
Last week we talked about Moses putting on the veil when he talked to the people, but he took the veil off when he spent time with God. And spending time alone with God without the veil is where you begin this process. And then you have to begin to cultivate the right relationship. No relationship just happens by itself. You or the person or both of you have to cultivate that relationship. If there's somebody out there that that you want to meet or somebody out there you want to have a relationship with or somebody that you'd like to have your friend, it just doesn't happen because they'll call you up and say, I was thinking that we ought to be friends today. You've got to cultivate that relationship. And it's the same way with God. The reason why, the reason why uh, many of God's people don't have any relationship with God is simply that fact. They've never cultivated it. Getting the right spirit. We talked about the witness of the spirit. Getting the right spirit in our heart to minister through God's spirit. We talked about letting God's glory fill us with God's power through his being all sufficiency in our life. And all that showing in our faces. And you know, the truth, this concept about your face and shining with the glory of God, it's, it's all through the Bible. I was thinking this week, uh, uh, you know, last night was the, uh, uh, I'm surprised I didn't get 20 emails on it. Usually people send it to me. Last night was the night that the moon was closest to the planet Earth. And, uh, and it was, a, I'm not sure why, but it was on the news, it was in the paper, uh, I come out last night to take the dogs out about 10.30, and my neighbors down the street here were having a moon party. And, you know, and by this time, they couldn't see the moon no matter where it was. In fact, I saw several of them pointing at a streetlight. I think that they thought that was the moon. You know, three sheets in the wind and two blown away. The moon could be anything you want it to be. And a lady, I heard her call my name, you know, and she come come down the street there, you know, and and. She says, I'm surprised you're not out looking at the moon. The moon is, and you could see the moon was coming up, and it was huge. I mean, it was absolutely huge. And, I, I you know, me, Mr. Professor, you know, uh, she, says, she says, I can't believe that you're not out there, you know, looking at the moon. You know, it's the closest that it is to the earth, and it's, it's absolutely huge. Like, there's Apollo 13 where the landing site was and all that stuff. And I said to her, I said, well... And, she, and I was going to leave it alone, but she kept pushing it. So I said, here's my big bubble-busting pin. Here we go. And I said, well, you know what, hon? Truthfully, the reason I'm not out here is because I know you see the moon is really big right now, but it isn't any bigger than it normally is. I said, when you look through the moon as it's coming up over here, you're looking at about through 300 miles of dirt, dust, pollution, and everything. And what that dust does, it, it, they call it light refraction. It, it scatters the light and the moon and looks like it's 16,000 times bigger than it is. It isn't really. It's looking through all the dirt, scatters the light, and makes it look that way. That same moon that looks as big as, you know, the pizza that you just got from Papa John's, when it gets up higher and overhead, you're looking through about 10 or 20 miles of dirt, there's no light refraction. That big old moon you saw over here will now go back to be the size that it was. The moon didn't change. The atmosphere distorts the moon. So what they're, truthfully, yes, yesterday was where the closest the moon was to planet Earth. But you would not see the difference. The guy kept saying, well, it looks a little brighter, but I don't see it any bigger. And I said, well, have another beer. It'll get bigger and brighter the more you drink, you know. <laughs> It's like the girl you're with. The more you drink, the better she looks, you know. <laughs> or that can go both ways too, by the way. 
So, and I, and I said, I don't want to bust your bubble, but, you know, I got a dog inside that's now wetting on the floor because you won't let me go. So now here we go. I'm going to bust your bubble. And she says, oh, yeah. I, truth of the matter is, it doesn't look any bigger. It doesn't get much bigger, and you couldn't tell the difference. But all through the Bible, that moon's an incredible thing. What I wanted to tell her with, but I didn't, is I wanted to tell her that all through the Bible, that moon and the sun are a key day. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, I think it's in verse 14, here's what he says. And God made two great lights, the greater light the rule the day, and the lesser light the rule the night. Now that's the sun and the moon. Now, you know in Christianity, going back to the shining the glory of God in our face, being the light, we talked about the ministry being life and light. That's a picture, and everything in the Bible is a picture. That. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, The invisible things of Him from the creation are clearly seen and understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. And when you look at that sun and the moon in its relationship, you realize that what you have a picture there and why God made that and said two great lights, one to rule the day, one to rule the night, that that's a picture of Christ and the church. The sun's a type of, of God. It's a type of Christ. And it has its own glory. The moon is a type of a Christian. Job chapter 25, verse 5 says, Behold the moon, and it shineth not. Well, what are you talking about? I saw it shining last night. No, you didn't see it shining last night. What you saw last night was the moon reflecting the light of the sun in its face. How many times have you ever heard over the years, see the face of the man in the moon? See? And if you look at the moon from our standpoint, uh, and if you were, you know, in the, and you would see that it, all the features up there kind of make some kind of ugly looking face, and it's the man in the moon. But that moon's a type of the Christian, and that sun's a type of God the Father, or Christ, and the moon doesn't shine by its own light. It reflects the light of God in the face of the moon, just like you and I should, glory of God should reflect in our face as a church. And that's why the Bible says he made the greater light the rule of the day. That'll be the millennial reign of Christ. And the lesser light the rule of the what? The night. That's the church age. Right now, the church age is called the night. You see, the sun's not here. The sun came to earth, died on the cross, and went back to heaven. So the sun is no longer here. So the only light that is here now is the light that is reflected from the moon. And that's why you don't see the sun at night. And when the sun goes down, darkness comes, the moon comes up, and the moon lights the night. The church ages the night. You and I are the only light here, but it isn't your light or my light. In your face, like the face of the moon, we're reflecting the light of the sun. See how it works? It's all through the Bible. So this idea of Moses' face shining when he comes down off the mountain, man, that goes all the way back to the type taught in Genesis. Now, I'll tell you something else. When science says an eclipse takes place and an eclipse takes place, and what happens? Uh, the, the sun blocks the light from the moon, and the moon goes dark. You can't see it. Somebody says, oh, that's a, that's a great scientific uh, uh, thing that happens, a great event scientifically. People all over the world photograph it, travel all over the place to see it. But in reality, if you take it from the Bible, that's not what you have. What you have is any time the world comes in between the sun and the moon, it's going to block the light out. You've got a picture of an Alpha Fellowship Christian. So this glory in your face is all through the Bible. And he's a, he picked Moses because of Moses is a great example of that. 
Now today, I want to finish this great chapter. I want to add to what we saw last week. And I've given you a basic little briefing on it and a recap of it. And, and now we're ready to introduction to it. And now we're ready to go. I want to put the finishing touches to uh, this outstanding chapter, which really defines ministry. And in the Bible, we find it in the greatest book on ministry, and that is the book of 2 Corinthians. And simply what we have gotten out of this so far, with all the things that we've seen, all the great principles that we laid out, it comes down to one basic fundamental truth. The proof of our salvation is nothing more than our ministry, fulfilling the very reason that God has saved us. Now, I want to read chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Now, here's what it says. Now, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Now, that glory to glory is the Old Testament glory to the New Testament glory. You want to put a little OT and a little NT by that so you remember it. Even as the spirit of the Lord. Now, let me begin this passage by uh, opening up with a word of prayer, and then I want to I point out some, some things to you that I think that will help you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Pray you'll bless this time. Bless those that are here. Give us the things that we need. Pray for the group down in Wichita today as they're uh, teaching the Word of God and making their way back. We pray uh, for all of the things that we've asked you to uh, watch over today and bless the rest of the day as we go to restart and out on the streets and, uh, and Lord, all of that. We'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to give you something here, first of all, that I think is very important, and you want to mark this in your Bible for future reference, and it's found in verse 17. It says, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This is one of the greatest verses in your Bible that shows you the aspect of the Trinity. And we know the Bible teaches that God is a triune God. He's a Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three are one. Many people don't believe that today. Uh, but we, we, the Bible teaches that very clearly and plainly. The greatest verse in the Bible on the Trinity is 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. And most of you have that marked in your Bible. It says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, that's Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And then it says, and these three are one. I've told you many times, but it's interesting that, that all the new Bibles take away from the deity of Christ other than the King James Bible. And you will find in all of your new Bibles, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 will not be there. Verse 17, going back to 2 Corinthians says, Now the Lord, that's God the Father, the Lord God is that Spirit. You see, God is the Spirit. God and the Holy Spirit are the same one. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the Spirit of the Lord is the same as the Spirit of God, which is God Himself. And that's called the Holy Spirit in the Bible, where you find it, sometimes called the Holy Ghost, uh, sometimes called the Spirit of the Living God. But it's a great verse that shows you the deity of the Holy Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit of God is very God. It's not a separate identity in the sense of, of uh, you know, uh, three different distinct things that are not connected. They're all in a Trinitarian mindset of laying out all being the same and all being equal, but having three distinct parts. It's like your body. Bible, if you know anything about your anatomy, you know, spiritually and physically, you're a body, soul, and spirit. 
That goes back to Genesis chapter 1, 2. And we also know that when God created man, he created him, it says, in our image. He's using the word our. Why? Because it's the Trinity speaking. So God is a, God is a Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God has a body, soul, and spirit. God is, God's soul is God, God's body is Christ, and God's spirit is the Holy Spirit. So when God made you and me, he made us a body, soul, and spirit. We're a trinity too, in that sense, in a physical sense. So you want to get that down, because that'll help you in future reference someplace if you want to prove that the Holy Spirit of God is very God. Then verse 17 says, uh, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now we have talked about uh, our liberty in Christ before as it pertains to us as Christians and our conduct under grace versus law. In fact, when we come through 1 Corinthians, we did a very lengthy study on it. So we'll not necessarily go back through that all again. But just to refresh your mind and to get in the flow of things here, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 said, All things are lawful. See, I'm not under the law anymore. I don't have any law pertaining to me. I'm under the New Testament grace. That's been the whole concept here. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Now, expedient is just another word for wise to do. You see, as a Christian, I can do anything. I'm not under the law, but there are things that are not wise for me to do. Now, there's some things in the Bible that are direct things that we're told not to do. But there's a lot of grace and a lot of liberty in what we have and where we go, what we go, who we go with, what we do, and how we act. And this is where this great concept comes in. Hey, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. And then he goes on and says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, there's the real key. I have liberty in my life. I can do whatever I want to do. But I never want to put anything in my life that takes control of my life more than the only thing that should control my life, and that would be the Holy Spirit of God. You have people who become alcoholics, become drug addicted. And when that happens, you know what happens? That drug controls them. That drug, uh, that drug uh, takes charge of their life. That alcohol now controls their life. And they have now been brought under the bondage of something and the power of something other than the Holy Spirit of God. It just kind of works like that. The other great verse is also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and they kind of go along hand to hand. And it says in verse 23, all things are lawful for me, same thing, but all things are not expedient, same thing. But then it defines it a little different. All things are lawful for me, but, not, but all things edify not. Now there it is. There are the two things that you ought to always make sure. If you want to keep your liberty in, in a good, uh, um, good uh, perspective, those are two things. Nothing in your life should have power over you that you do or you allow more than God. And I've seen it. I've seen Christian girls and Christian guys get hooked up with somebody that they shouldn't be hooked up with in a relationship. And you know what? They quit coming to Bible study. They quit coming to church. They quit ministering. They kept doing all this. Why? Because something now has more power over you than the Holy Spirit of God. You see it all the time in people's lives. And you learn those things as you deal with people, why they do. And then the second thing here, all things are lawful, but not all things edify not. There should be never anything in your life or my life that we allow that does not edify us for the work of the ministry uh, to do what God wants us to do. Those two things alone will be your success as a Christian, 
or your downfall as a Christian when it comes to your liberty. Uh, you know, a great teaching, uh, liberty is for our edification. And when you don't use it that way, then 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 takes place, and it says, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. And uh, sec- uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 uh, says, Not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. And that's what happens many, many times. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 says, There's somebody always watching your life if you're a Christian. You may not know it, you may not see it, but they're always watching your life. And when you misuse your liberty, when you let something else have more control over you than God's Holy Spirit, and when you get into things that don't edify you as a Christian, then this is where the downfall comes in. And it's, it's a, something that will be the very simple. You know, most of the Bible, most of the personal practical things in the Word of God, most of this aspect of understanding uh, our relationship with God and how it works and how, how simplistic it is, it's not very hard. It's just understanding some simple principles. And I'm going to show you here as we develop this, one of the most simplest principles in the world that will either make you or break you. And basically pretty much says where you and I are at today. Now, as this verse stands here, all that I said is true in a practical sense, but the context of this verse is liberty in ministry. And we can take a practical application to it, but as the verse stands in this chapter, he's talking about liberty in ministry. The passage teaches that the New Testament, which gives life through the Holy Spirit of God and light, is given to the minister our liberty to minister without the constraints of the law. You see, you see it on our own church service. And we get a better understanding of what that means. We don't have any formalism here, if you haven't figured that out yet. There's no rigid, formal structure to what we do. Uh, we follow the Holy Spirit of God in our liberty. I think you ought to have fun in your relationship with Christ. In the Old Testament law, they didn't have that. The Old Testament law, you were always under the watchful eye of the law. And they had ordinances they had to follow. They had rules. They had a format. They had a specific structure which could never be deviated from. And here, the Holy Spirit of God is in charge. He leads and guides us to do what He wants or gives us the freedom to do what we want within the guidelines of, uh, of the Word of God. When the Holy Spirit of God living inside us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, and He's in charge, when it comes to our meeting together and having church, you know, uh, every aspect uh, is very loosely controlled. That's really liberty. It's, it's you know, it's, it's like having the freedom to do whatever you want to do. Most churches, and many churches, they still form a, you know, they still have a very original schedule and structure every Sunday. Here, nothing is orchestrated. Nothing is canned. Nothing is artificial. From the music to the preaching. It all goes, if it changes, it changes. I mean, in many, many ritualistic churches, somebody flicking lights off during the service would have given everybody a heart attack. They'd all thought the same thing. You know, how could God be here? I got news for you. It was God flicking a light switch off probably back there. And the thing is, we get caught in those things and that formulism and all that stuff, and many churches still do. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, as we think of it, and again, this is not a criticism, but it's a truth. 
They, they're very structured in what they do. When the Reformation took place, the Lutheran Church, uh, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church, the Greek and Orthodox Church, sometime even before the Reformation, they all came out of the Catholic Church, and they all held to a real form of, of ritualism. You have to do everything at the right time the right way. Everything is the same way. Everything has to go Sunday after Sunday, and if you break the sequence, you know, it's like God is not pleased. And yet I find Baptist churches many times uh, do the exact same thing. You sing, you pray, you kneel, you stand, and you sit on command, you see? And that's not, and we call that worship. And that's not worship. We get the idea that worshiping God has to do with a building. And that's not true. You'd be surprised at the people out there, God's people, who think that if you laugh in church, it's a sin. If you have fun in church, it's a sin. If you speak loud in church, it's a sin. If you do anything out of what we in our mindset ought to be what goes along with God, it's because we have a really bad understanding of who God is. God likes to have a good time just like we do. You say, how do you know that? Because look at all the fun we have and he hadn't killed anybody yet. It's liberty in ministry. It's liberty in your worship. And, it, and, and people get the idea. Uh, you see it all the time on churches. Come to, come to our worships. We have a 9 o'clock worship service or 11 o'clock worship service. And they talk that way because they don't know the Bible. Somebody kill that bug if you can. It's a <laughs> demon-possessed bug. I guarantee you. I'm going to get me my bug zapper and pluck it in back there. There is no worship service. You don't have a service to worship God. You worship God in your spirit and the word of God that God's given you. That's spiritual worship. You worship God in spirit and truth. The Bible says that. This, you know, people say, well, this doesn't look like a church. What's a church look like? You think it's a steeple in a building. You know, you know how it goes. Here's the church. There's the steeple. Open the door and there's all the people. You know, that's how you think it is. Want to see that again? Here's the, this is the work with your kids. Here's the church. There's the steeple. Open the door. There's all the people. See, that's how it works. I have a sermon on that. But you can't do it with sore fingers. And anyway, there's nothing holy about this building, any building. What makes it holy is the people that are in this building if you're saved. Your building is the church, not the building the church is in. This is the same wood, the same carpet, the same ceilings, the same light bulbs that they have down at the bar. You can put it anywhere. We don't get sanctified carpet or sanctified ceilings that make this place holy. What makes a building uh, anything special, if anything at all does, is the people that are sitting in it. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You. And that's the whole concept. And people, they get up, they, they don't understand that. So they go through the deal. They have to do the Lord's Prayer they, every Sunday. They have to do the Apostles' Creed, the Oxford Confession. They go through all of those different things. And then they think that's church. And it's a rigid formalism, and that is not what's in liberty. You see, the Old Testament, they didn't have that grace and liberty that we have. They had, spe they had specific things. They had things that they had to follow. They had specifics of who could minister, who got ministered to. The Sabbath was vital. And that's why you have many churches that have a formulism. They just couldn't handle that the Sabbath uh, is no longer for you and for me. 
Because the Sabbath is Saturday in the Bible. So what do they do? To bring it along with their mindset of formalism, they make the Sabbath, which is Saturday, the Sunday for Christians. And it's not. It's not. I don't know what to tell you. We studied it last week in Colossians 2. The body is of Christ. You're not under these things anymore. We have liberty. And that's what he's saying here. Liberty to minister, liberty to praise God, liberty to laugh, liberty to praise the answer back to heaven, liberty to do all of those things. They never did that in the Old Testament. Hey, in the Old Testament with a priest, if he went into that Holy of Holies and he didn't have the right clothes on the right way and he sweated the wrong way, he got killed. Man, I'm sure glad that don't have happen to anybody preaching today, or me in particular that I'm thinking of. Back then, the calendar of their year was based on their religion. They had holy days. They had the feasts. And again, you see mainstream Christianity. Colossians 2 says that there's no Sabbath for us. There's no holy days, holiday. There's nothing that we do, no structure within the year that we hold. And yet, in Protestant churches and many Baptist churches, they always have two holy days, Easter and Christmas, that they try to jump into here and try to make it in spite of what the Bible says. And we've been through it many, many times, and I'm not poo-pooing Christmas or Easter. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I got two new puppies. Poo-poo is a great word that I've been using a lot this week. I hope it works better with you than it has with them. But none of that is the New Testament ministry under grace and liberty. And, you know, and they were under the law, and it was very strict. It was very hard. They couldn't have a lot of things that they did. But we have the grace and the liberty and ministry to do that. Now, uh, look at verse 18. And we see another great principle. Uh, it says, now, in, uh, it says, but we all with an open face, beholding as, an, as a glass the glory of the Lord, are chained into the same image, glory to glory, as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I, I like that verse. But we all with an open face. You know what it said? Nothing about an open mouth. It absolutely said nothing about beholding with an open mouth. You don't witness with your mouth. I, my great friend and, 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 and buddy in the Lord that I won to Christ many, many years ago, uh, Greg McClintock, he used to say, every Christian out a witness. And then he'd add to it and sometimes even use words. And that is so true. The greatest witness you have is not what you say. The greatest witness you have is beholding in your face. And that's a tremendous thought. That's a tremendous principle. How backward we have that. Completely backward. And from here on in this, in this verse, verse 18, here the Bible now is likened to a mirror that you look into. And this, without a doubt, is one of the greatest aspects and one of the greatest studies that you're ever going to find anywhere <coughs> in the Word of God, in your relationship with Christ. And this is why Paul, again, uses it. It's an incredible thing. Now, I want to get along with that, James chapter 1, verse <coughs> 22 <coughs> and 25. <coughs> James chapter 1, verses 22, 23, 24, and 25. This is a great passage. <coughs> it's a great passage. <coughs> he says in verse 18, but we... With an open face, beholding as in a glass, 
a glass. Now that's a mirror. I like a looking glass. And in James chapter 1 verse 22, and you want to get this passage lined up to this one and vice versa, here's what it says. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he was like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Now that's a man looking in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law, here it comes, of liberty. You see that? This is the New Testament Christian church here. And continueth therein. He being a, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in a day. You see how that thing went? It went from doers of the word to doers of the work. You know why? Because you can't do the word without getting into the work. And when you do, say you do the word, but you don't do the work, hey, I like verse 22 because it says right there what I've been telling you for the last 10 years. But if you be doers of the word and not hearers only, Deceiving your own self. And boy, God's people deceive themselves today. They deceive themselves in the sense that they, can, they want to pretend that they're a Christian. They hear the word of God, but they never do anything with it. And the Bible now has, has sought you out. The Bible now has laid us all bare. And this whole concept and this whole study is such a simple thing to do. He says you don't do it with an open mouth. You do it with an open face. And it's not just about hearing the Word of God. It's about being a doer of the Word of God. And then he changes that to the doing of the work of God. Doers of the Word, hearers of the Word. And when you hear the Word of God and you do the Word of God, there's ministry. Doing something with what you have heard and what God has done in your life. Verse 23, here's 99% of God's people today. If any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's liking unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. And it says there that for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now the first thing I want you to see there, it says natural face. Now that's what you and I really look like on the inside. And the word of God is likened to a mirror. And when you look into that mirror, you see a reflection. But the reflection that you see is not always what you think you look like. Some of you think you look really good till you look in a mirror. No, I'm serious. You think, well, this really nice is nice. You're always going around. How's my hair look? How's my face look? How's my clothes? Does this fit? Does this make you look fat? Does this do that? Does this that? I mean, does this color coordinate it all the time? You know, when you, you ask yourself that all the time. You ask people because do you really want somebody to tell me, yes, that dress really makes you look fat? Do you really want somebody to say, you spent money on that haircut? Do you really want somebody to tell? No, you don't. You're asking them so they'll, they'll, they'll bolster up what you desperately hope is true. Now, your friends will lie to you, but a mirror never lies to you. And it's your natural face, not the painted up one that we pretend. It's the one, that, and that's what the Bible does, boy. And this is why men don't read the Bible. This is why people don't get in the Bible. This is exactly why. Because they, they, they look into it and they don't like it. He beholdeth himself and then goeth, notice, he goes his way. He's not going God's way. 
He goes his way and straight away, as quickly as you can, forget what manner of man he was. And that's exactly what 99% of God's people do today. Hey, when you're going to deal with people, you're going to have people in all your life that if you get into this thing and you do what you have aspired to do, you're going to be working with people all the time and you're going to be dealing with them. These are the things that you learn. People will try to fool you. People will try to pretend with you. People will talk the talk. People will, everything will come out of their mouth that's supposed to be the right things they say. It's never an open mouth. It's always beholding the open face. And when you get these things down, it's hard to get fooled. If you get them down good, it's impossible to get fooled. Because it clearly says that if you're a hearer of the word, then you're going to be a doer of the word. And the word is now, you can't just say, well, I'm doing the word. No, no, he changed the word to work. That's ministry. And it puts, hey, it, to me, it makes it absolutely, incredibly simple. Absolutely. But whoso looketh unto the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, verse 25 says, hearer of the word and a doer of the work. Now, we need to get this. This will answer a lot of questions for you in, as I said, dealing with people. The Bible shows us the word of God is like a looking glass, a mirror. It shows us our natural face. Verse 25 calls it the perfect law of liberty. That's the word of God. The New Testament law of liberty is simply the biblical principles that we read and apply that gives us the freedom to do the ministry and makes us more like Christ in everything we do. I've said it many, many times, and this is so important. And this is what people forget. And this is where they get caught and trapped. And, you know, it's like old Mel used to say, God's got a wrench that'll fit in a nut in this world. And boy, that is so true. He also used to say that the Bible is the only book that when you begin to read it, it begins to read you. And this is what men don't like. This is what people don't like. People want to do what's right as long as they don't have to change who they are. That's, that's the way it is. Hey, in, my, in all the years of my ministry, I had people come into me and sit down with me and said, Bob, my life's a mess. Bob, I got troubles. I got this. I got that. My, I got a problem with my kids. I got a problem with my husband. I got a problem with my wife. Or I've been divorced. Or I, my kids don't want to do what's right. I've heard every scenario in the world. And I, I tell them, hey, look, I'm sorry that all that happened. But there is, I got good news. The good news is we can fix all that. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I, I, I need this and I need that. And I'll say, I'll tell you what you need. You need accountability and you need structure because that's what's lacking in your life. All right, all right. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Hey, let me tell you something. You start to work with that person. You start to get that person in the Bible. And you know what happens? When they start, everybody wants to look at himself in the mirror at a glance. Nobody wants to study who they really are in that mirror. You know why? Because it shows you your natural face. It shows who you really are and who I really am. And I'll be honest with you, we just don't, it takes a special kind of person to want to be able to put up with that. But that kind of person is the one that God takes and does something with. All my life, they start to get in, you put somebody to work with them, you start working with them, you start helping them, and then here, what, six months later, oh, six months, two months later, two months later, 
forcing them into the book, making them change and look at the bad choices that they made and now try to correct them and try to force them to look in that mirror? Where on three weeks ago, four weeks ago, a month ago, oh, yes, anything you wanted. Yeah, as long as you didn't have to really do the work. Now when you've got to get down to it, you've got to fix things. You've got to change things. You've got to alter who you were. You've got to look in that mirror, that book, every day. Now it's not as fun anymore, is it? Now, on one hand, I was your best friend on Monday. Now I'm your enemy on Tuesday. Now I was great and you were going to help me and I was so excited. Now something's changed. And now you want to, you who made a million mistakes, who have made all kinds of problems in your life, now because you don't like looking in the mirror. Hey, it isn't about anybody you work with. It isn't about your circumstances. It isn't about your situation. It's about we don't like to look in that mirror and see our natural face. And when we do, that's where the rubber meets the road. And now suddenly, we who knew nothing about life, we who made a mess out of life, we who made a mess out of our marriage, a mess out of our kids, a mess out of everything in our life, suddenly now think that I know more about it now than you do. Hit the road. Your life has been a disaster up one side and down the other. And now, because... You're in this thing, what, six months, seven months, a year, maybe less than that? And now you're faced with the real hard, everyday things that you now got to get into? What did you think? You were going to say, oh, I want to do what's right. And you were going to go to sleep and a big, good, godly fairy came down. There ain't no big, good, godly fairies. I want to tell you that right now. Would sprinkle the spiritual fairy dust on you. And you, without doing anything, changing anything... Ever having to deal with any disaster in your life, you just wake up and it doesn't work that way. You broke it, you fix it. That's how it works. That's how it works. Now God will help you do it. But there's only one way you will do it. Look in the mirror. See what manner of man you are and quit complaining about it and change about you what you got to change. That's how it works. That's exactly how it works. Now, see how simple that is? I mean, that's so simple. Now, this is why men don't read the Bible. Now, this is why you'll find uh, that in church, they'll be in churches for 40 years, 30 years, 20 years. And they don't know any more about the Bible and the Word of God or God or doing anything more now than they did the day they walked in the door. Now, this is why men will study prophecy. They'll study end times. They'll get into all of the revelation stuff. And then they'll try to fool you that they're really in the Bible. But when you look past that, you see the number one ingredient in your life and my life is not the book of Revelation. It's not the end times. It's not all that's going to happen and is unfolding around us, though that's important. The real proof of your ministry is of your life is your ministry. I don't have one. <laughs> you ain't got any proof. See how simple that is? I mean, I love things in the Bible that when everybody leaves, you know where you're at. I've been in church services and heard guys preach when I left. I wasn't sure where I was. But at least today, when you leave here, you'll see how simple it really is. You're either a hearer of the word or you're a doer of the word. And if you're a hearer of the word and a doer of the word, it translates as a doer of the work. 
And it's just that simple. Now, when you come to this book, let me change that. When this book comes to you, and you're faced with a mirror, as this man was here, you have two choices. You can correct the problem you see in yourself, or you can ignore what you see and forget what manner of man you are. Verse 25 says, He that looketh unto the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. There's the key. Not just looking in it, continuing in it. Staying with it every day of your life. Get a process in your world, in your life. Staying in that book with God, without the veil. Getting the glory of God in your face. Seeing that glory. Hey, you'll either be a doer of the word and the work or a forgetful hearer. And I'll tell you what. All my life, some of God's people couldn't wait to get out of a church service so they could forget what they heard. You say, how do you know that's true? Because they never do anything with it. I mean, don't you ever get to the point in your life where God's people, they just, they, they hear the word of God, they feel the conviction. They hear things like Thursday night, last Sunday, and today, and yet nothing changes. If you'd have preached these three messages 150 years ago, man, there would have been empty seats. Everybody would have been on their face, prostrate before God. Nothing moves God's people anymore today. Nothing, nothing really gets to them anymore. We've got a hardened heart to the place where well, we'll come to church 20, 30, 40 years. Do nothing for God. Give nothing to God. Be nothing for God at all. Come and hear sermons every week. Sit around the Holy Spirit of God working in people's lives and walk out with our proud look and our tail up. We ought to have our tail between our legs and be ashamed of ourselves with what we don't do with the Word of God. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just telling you what it is. With great plainness of speech, as Paul said last week. Now, here's how this thing works. Right now, if you're a young Christian, and even in my case, many, many times, maybe on a different level, when I get into that book and I see the Word of God and I read it, we don't see everything the way God wants us to. Young Christians, many times baby Christians, they don't see much at all. But the Bible says that that all, we with all with an open face behold in a glass the glory of the Lord. You know how that works? Right now I look into the book. You look into the book. Depending on where you're at spiritually, you don't see a lot. And the Bible says that what we do see as we look into this thing is we get a reflection Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, it says, For now we see through a glass darkly. We do. That's the Word of God. But then face to face. Now I know, even as I also am known, there's coming a day when we have the rapture of the church and we are face to face with God and we get His mind that we'll know everything, just like you'll know everything about everything on the planet, just like you know everything about yourself. But now, see, we see through the glass darkly. We don't always see it all. 
There's a process to learning how to see it. Right now, we don't get it all. Now, at the rapture, we will face to face, yes. But verse 18 says, changed into the same image from glory to glory. But here's what happens. Right now, young Christians get into that book. They don't really see the Lord as he is. But what they get in that mirror is two reflections. The first reflection they get is of their own selves. And they see what manner of man they are. And then the second reflection they get is the glory of the Lord. They get that through, like we studied last week, the life of Moses. You can study the life of Joseph, the life of Daniel, the life of Abraham, the life of Noah, anybody in the Bible. And what you see in their life when you study them is a glimpse of an image that is based on the Holy Spirit of God revealing himself to you. And through that, you see God's glory. But you got to see, you see, when you get into that first thing the first time, the first thing you see is yourself. You have to look at yourself. You have to get yourself out of the way. And this is what men won't do. This is why people get into the Bible, start the Bible, they get help, they want help, and then three, four weeks later, they don't want help anymore. They'll blame it on you, they'll blame it on me, they'll blame it on the church, they'll blame it on the birds, they'll blame it on the sun coming up or the daylight savings time. They'll blame it on everybody. But the reality of it is the truth goes back if you really know when you're working with people. The bottom line is they looked into the mirror, they didn't like what they saw, they weren't willing to change what they saw, so they decided not to change it. And where it once was thank you, now it's no thank you. And it's not just no thank you, it's no thank you, I'm blaming you. See, that's how it works. That's how it always works. But these young Christians, they get a reflection of who Christ is. And from there, you know, the more I expose myself, continue therein, the more I expose myself to that word of God, looking into that mirror without the veil, face to face, the more I build my relationship with God to be his friend. The more I spend time in that book, the more I spend time in that mirror, looking at me first, realizing who I am, and then seeing more and more of God's reflection, I more and more I see Him, the glory, the more I see of myself and who I really am, my true condition, and then you know what it makes me do? It makes me correct myself. I can't look at myself and say, I'm satisfied with that. I can't have the Word of God point back at me and say, this is who you really are, and if I'm honest, say, I'm happy with that. When I see God's glory and I see my scenario of where I'm at, i got a choice now. I'm either going to want to stay who I am or I want to be more like Christ. That's your choice. It's the mirror, the Word of God, and looking into it that produces that. And that's why, end of the day, Bottom line, people don't get into that book. You play with the Word of God. You use it where it's convenient. Oh, you like preaching, all right. You like preaching that edifies your good points. You don't like things that edify your bad points. Nobody likes to be pointed out to the mistakes they made in life, but I got news for you. That's part of life. You never learn to fix what's wrong if you don't find out what's wrong. And it's not my job to tell you what's wrong. Many times I get clobbered just because I'm preaching a book that I had nothing to do with. You think my sermons are, are tough. Hey, the bottom line is I didn't write that book. He wrote it. And he wrote it, I'm just telling you what he said. You want to take it up with somebody, take it up with him. Oh, by the way, you will. You will. 
one way or the other. Now, the more God's reflection I see of him, I become a doer of the word. And in time, a doer of the work. First inwardly, then secondly, outwardly. This process, the longer I do it, is that transformation of me and changes me into the image of God that people now see in my face. But it all starts with a mirror. And that's why he says change into the same image from glory to glory. It was the same glory in the Old Testament, the same glory in the New Testament. The New Testament is more glorious, but it was the same glory. And you and I are changed into that glory. Now, you need to know this and understand this. The only process, this process only takes place in God's church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 14 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Here it comes, three things. You know them already. For the work of the ministry, for the perfection of the saints, excuse me, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. All right, here we go. Perfecting of the saints, you see? Hearers of the word. That's how you perfect yourself. You hear the word of God. But then it says, second thing, work in the ministry. All right? There's a doer of the word. And then the third one, edifying the body of Christ. There's your liberty. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Your liberty in Christ. Now, verse 13 goes on and says, Till we all come, now here it comes, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, that will be Jesus Christ, out of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Here it comes. But speaking the truth, verse 15, in love may grow up into him. Not unto him. Into him. This morning, if you're saved, there should be a process in your life of being a hearer of the Word of God, a doer of the Word of God, and a doer of the work of God, that through that process of seeing His face and spending time with Him and Him spending time with you, through the Holy Spirit of God enriching your life, that every day you are closer and you grow up, not unto Him, you're transformed into Him, and that's when they see the glory of God in your face. Oh, Mel Sabaka used to say many things. One of the things I never forgot, he said. He says, you got to love Jesus Christ more today than you did yesterday. You got to love God more this year than you did last year. You got to love God more this month than you did last month. That's the process. I know when I meet him at the rapture of church, I'm going to be like him. But when that takes place... <laughs> You had to have transformed yourself in every aspect of my life and your life to that point where it's a very simple process because you've been working at it every day of your life, looking in that mirror, looking in that mirror, looking in that mirror. Now, this is the simple process that has to take place. And it all starts with me, my own personal life. It starts with you and your life. People like to blame everything on their circumstances. People like to blame what they do or they don't do and what somebody else either did to them or did or whatever or is doing. People like to always blame their circumstances on their mom or their father or their job or their whatever. You know, it all works that way. And the truth of the matter is, it starts with you and me 
getting honest with ourselves and looking into that mirror and seeing the natural face of what manner of man we are and then choosing, choosing, choosing to fix it. That simple. I can't fix it for you. All I can do is fix it for me. All my life, I've seen husband and wife relationships go back and forth in, in, in murderous conditions. Terrible. I mean, situations that just many times wind in divorce, many times just lead to all kinds of problems. I've seen it all of my life. And yet, all the couples are different. All the circumstances are different. All the ages are different. Some had children, some didn't. Some had children by another marriage, some didn't. All the scenarios are totally different. But there's one common denominator that pulls it all together. The reason why they won't get it fixed is because they won't individually look into the mirror and change themselves first. Hey, husband, you want to fix your marriage? You want to change your marriage? Then change yourself. Quit being under the radar with what you do. Quit, quit hiding what you do. Quit being in secret about all of the things. You want to, you, you go to church, you carry your Bible, you do everything you're supposed to do. But come on, you know this morning as well as I do. Inside your heart, it's black as the sides of the bottomless pit. And you know why? Not because you're a bad guy, not because you're a bad person. One simple thing. When you look into that mirror, you don't like what you see, and then you move right on. Want to change your kids? Do you? Could be all the time. I need to fix my kids. Then why do you start by fixing yourself? That'd be my choice. You got problems in your marriage, husband? I'll tell you what. Change the things about you. Sit down and make a list. Be honest. Look in the mirror. But you won't. You won't at all. You know why? Because you will not look in that mirror. You'll look around the mirror. You'll take a quick glance at the mirror. You'll walk through and say, I don't like that. And you move right on. But you won't continue therein. Wives, you want to come to the place where you become better in your relationship or you want to become better with your kids or you want to do anything that God wants you to do. It's simple. Fix yourself first. Don't worry about fixing him. Don't him worry about fixing you. You can't do that. The problem is your marriage will never survive until both of you want to look into that mirror and deal with the manner of man you see and then fix it. That's a problem for many people. It's a problem. I've seen people with sin issues. I people have seen who have made every mistake in life. Their life is an absolute disaster. And yet the tragedy is they could fix it. And the funny part is they say they want to fix it. Up to the point they got to look at the hard reality in that mirror of the mistakes they made and they got to realize that somebody knows more about the problems than you do and then they get in that book and they change about themselves whatever they got to change without blaming somebody else, without, without going off and coming to the point where you think that it's everybody else's problem. It's our problem. And it only gets changed by looking in the mirror. And when you look in the mirror, you see what the problem is. You see what the problem is. And that's the way it works. It works just that way. Now, I want to give you... And if you're ever going to be a pastor, or you're ever going to get into ministry, or you're going to be a, a ball captain, or you're working, whatever. But when you deal with people, I'm going to give you seven characteristics of a mirror and the Word of God. And boy, is this thing not true. It's right on the money. Seven characteristics of mirrors 
and how they represent the Word of God in our lives. And boy, if there's nothing that doesn't just kill us, it's this. Number one is simply broken mirrors always give a false image. You see, you have to start with the true Word of God in your life. New Bibles do one thing well. By changing the key words and altering the text in over 60,000 places, it gives us a distorted view of everything, especially ourselves. You can't track the key things. That study of Moses last week would have been impossible to take. You can't get out of it because a broken mirror always gives a false image. Number two, you need light to see yourself in a mirror. You can't see yourself in the mirror in a dark room. And that light is the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And this is what happens when you get into that mirror and you look into it, then the Holy Spirit of God kicks in. The Bible says, as the entrance of thy word giveth light. You know what that light is? The Holy Spirit of God. He's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into, thy, uh, into the world. The Bible says that uh, uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. And that's all exactly, that's all exactly what the Holy Spirit of God is. When we look into that mirror and we see our natural face, the Holy Spirit of God turns the lights on. You look pretty good when you look in the mirror in the dark. Second, the third thing is simply this. You should start each day with a look in the mirror. You know, you do that physically. Every morning when you drag your dead carcass out of bed and go to the bathroom and look in that mirror and you say to yourself, boy, do I got some work to do today. I mean, physically speaking, it never ceases to amaze me. Physically speaking, every morning you look in that mirror and then you fix what's wrong with you before you leave the house. Some of you folks wouldn't think about going out and facing the world the way you look in the mirror when you first see yourself. And for some reason, it takes women a lot longer than it does men. I'm not sure why that is. Or maybe it used to. But it's a thing where they'll, women will stay in there for hours. I mean, and, and they'll just work on it and just work on it and work on it. I mean, they, they, they got to get a job in a body shop. They do great work. Bravely spoken. <laughs> yeah, you'll get up in the morning and you'll never look in the mirror of God's book. You'll get up in the morning and you'll pamper yourself, clean yourself, brush your teeth, fix your hair, do everything, put your makeup on, get everything ready to go, and you won't take five minutes and never look into that book and God's ministry to prepare yourself for what's out there for you. God and serving Him and, and ministry for Him is about as far from you, your thought process, as you could ever get. Fourth thing, a mirror does not lie. It shows what we really look like. You see, we lie to ourselves when we look into it, and by that we deceive ourselves. This is man's fundamental issue with God, churches, preachers, preaching, messages, and the Bible. Great story, we all grew up with the kids, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And she always had a, an enemy, that was the wicked witch who always was angered at Snow White's beauty and always would look into a mirror and say, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror would come back and say, not you, you ugly witch. <laughs> <laughs> Mirrors never lie. Now you laugh at that little story and that's a little thing we've all heard. 
But we all do that every morning when we look into the mirror because we've deceived ourselves. No ministry, doing nothing for God, absolutely zero in our life of anything that counts for God that proves we're even saved. And then we got the audacity and the guts to stand in the mirror and say, God, I look pretty good. Well, you get into his mirror and he'll show you what manner of man you really are. You really are. You see, it's easy when there's no book and there's no mirror, you just deceive yourself. I think the story of Snow White's one of the greatest stories in the Bible as far as all the stories that we put together for a little, little kid story, they're all found in the Bible. You had Snow White. She's not called Snow White for anything. She's Snow White because she's a picture of the church. And once you've been saved, you got on white raiments. You're Snow White today. And she had a wicked witch who, by the way, didn't like her because she was Snow White. And it goes back to the mirror, mirror thing. And this is why some of God's people... As I said many, many times, this is why some of you God's people who are phonies don't like the real deal. You're just like the wicked witch. You say, mirror, mirror on the wall. How do I look today? And he says, not as good as Snow White. Well, I hate Snow White. Now, in the Bible sense, you know what happened. She had Snow White. The wicked witch gave her forbidden fruit, was poisoned, and she died. Happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, if you're paying attention. And she stayed dead till one day her prince showed up. He came from Photomat. Someday my prince will come. That prince showed up on a white horse, got down. What did he do? Kissed her. She came alive. They lived happily ever after. You see, one day, one of my great ancestors took a poison fruit, and it killed me. And one of these days, one day, my prince showed up and kissed my soul with a word of God, and brother gave me life. And today, as rotchy as I look and as ugly as I look on the inside, I am snow white. Say, what about the seven dwarfs? Well, read Isaiah chapter 11. There's seven spirits of the Holy Spirit of God over there. It all fits into there. I mean, you want a good one? Mary had a little lamb. Sure she did. Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 4. Whose fleece was white as snow? Absolutely. You bet she did. That lamb was spotless for the sin of the world. High diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle, and the cow jumped over the what? Cow, Baal worship, moon, church. Oh, yeah, it's all in there. It's all in there. But that's just what you get, you see. It's a thing where that's the way it works. We look into the mirror. We don't like what we see, so we deceive ourselves. And then when that mirror shows us we're not right and it shows you snow white, then you get mad at snow white, and that's why God's people absolutely slander, clobber, murder, character-wise, other God's people who are doing what's right when they're not. It goes back to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Just that simple. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Fifth thing. Unlike a picture, which reproduces and holds the image at the time it was taken. You can look at a, a picture of you taken back in 1970, and here you are all grown up today, and you look at the picture, and you're the same way you were back there in 1970. But a mirror is alive our mirror always gives you the exact, up-to-date, true image of us and everything about us and the way we look when we look into it. That's why men don't read the Bible. See? People like to live in the past. That's how you get around it sometimes. You live in the past. You live in the past. I talked to a couple one time uh, years ago, and they had a wayward son, you know, and who was lost as a goose, and they, you know, it happened several times. And, they, and I said, well, what about... What about what about your, your son? I said, is, 
you know, he, he doesn't seem to care about church, doesn't come to church, doesn't do anything. And, and, the, and, the, and the mom popped up and said, oh, you know what? Yeah, he doesn't, but, you know, he was saved. He was saved 20 years ago. I thought to myself, that's the most stupidest statement I ever heard in my life. Who cares about a silly statement that you were saved 20 years ago when you're not doing anything today? You think your statement that you were saved 20 years ago means absolutely anything if 20 years later you're as worthless as you were back then? You think that gains you any credibility? I seriously question your decision 20 years ago if your life is not where it needs to be today and you got to go back 20 years to prove you were saved. My Bible says the way you prove you're saved, Paul, they question him. He says, you want proof of my ministry? You, because you wouldn't even be here if I didn't win you to Christ. Your proof was 20 years ago? What, and for 20 years you just kind of got lost someplace? Took the wrong bus and wound up in Seattle? People are strange. Your salvation is not based on what you did 20 years ago. Your salvation is based on what you're doing today. Now the sixth one, no matter how many mirrors you have, you can have one, you can have ten, you can have a hundred. They always show you the same thing about us. Mirrors never lie. I always enjoy how people shop around, even if we're with me. They'll come in and they'll tell me, Bob, I got this problem, I do this. And I'll, I'll say, well, this is what the Bible says. I'll help you with it, I'll lay it all out. And you know what they do? They'll shop it around to nine other people. You know why they'll do that? They don't want to hear, they don't want to look in the mirror. They want to find somebody that'll agree with them where they're at and, and take up their cause where they're at without them having to look in the mirror and change anything. Your tactics are so old, they went out with armor. I mean, it's just that simple. Some people shop for opinions. They go around wanting to know what everybody thinks about it. You know, you talk to me and then you'll say, well, I, I gave you what the Word of God says. Next thing you know, if somebody calls me up and says, well, so-and-so, you know, asked me to help them. Or this person is, wants me to do this. And I said, what? And all that translates down, folks, when you get to the counseling ministry, is they took a look in the mirror and they knew that when they came to talk to me, I had a big mirror and they're going to have to look in that mirror and they'd rather go somebody where they're stupid and dumb and don't have a mirror and let them find the answer they want instead of what the answer they need. That's how that works. Now, the seventh thing, lastly, no matter how many mirrors you do have, they won't do you any good unless you look into them and use them. And that requires getting honest with yourself. That requires you quit deceiving yourself. I mean, some of you wouldn't think of going to church without your Bible, but you don't use it or open it from Monday to Saturday. Most of you have 5, 10, 20 different Bibles at home. You got one for work, one for study, one for church, one for restart, as you don't look at any of them. You know, having a bunch of Bibles doesn't make you right with God and make you a Christian any more than me buying you a $40,000 grand piano makes you a musician. They don't work unless you can play it. Going to church won't solve your problems. Reading the Bible won't solve your problems. Getting honest with God, then going to church, getting into the Word of God to solve your problem, and then looking in that mirror, and then fixing what you see. Thursday night, we got, a good, we got a good answer to the thing I said last week about how Mel Sabaka said that he not every, not every Christmas going in the rapture of the church. Now we got a good understanding of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Now you can see the two men in the Bible. They both did the exact thing. They both were with Christ. They both witnessed. They both preached. They both did this. They both did that. They both confessed. They both repented. They both did everything they were supposed to do. One died and went to heaven. One died and went to hell. 
And the difference is godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And what you don't see today is godly sorrow in people's lives. And that pretty much wraps it up. I don't know if you know much about a guy by the name of Nathaniel Hawthorne. He's a writer. And he wrote back in the early half of the 1800s. He writes short stories. I've always enjoyed his works because I don't know if he was saved or not, but I knew this. He always threads a moral theme into his short stories that always usually go back to the Bible. I don't know if you ever read this in school or not, but he once wrote a story called The Great Stone Face. In that story, it was a a legend that was told about a mythical but yet famous old New Hampshire landmark that was a rock formation that when you looked at it, it looked like an old man's face was on that formation. And they called it the old man of the mountain. The legend went that someday that man whose face was in that rock was going to return. And there was a young boy that was caught up in all of the folklore and all of the things that he uh, went along with it. And he was so caught up with it. He would, every day, he would stop and he would study to look at that face. And he would, then he would go through town and every stranger that came into town, he would look and see if that was the face on the rock. And he did this all of his life. Some pretty famous people came through uh, that town, but to that little boy's dismay, not one of them ever fit the description of the face that was in the rock. Then one day, years, years, years later, when he was now an old man, as he was walking down the street of that town, another little boy pointed to him and cried out and said, Look, there's the old man of the mountain. He's finally come. And he looked around and he realized that a crowd of people was looking at him and he realized that they were talking about him. You see, he had looked at that mountain formation for so many years. He studied every feature of that face on that rock for so long that in time and over the process of years that now because he studied it and he looked at it so intently and he looked at it, what it did, and tried to figure out every feature, now his own face took on the features of that face in that rock. And he didn't even know it. You know, that's the way it ought to be with us as Christians. If you haven't figured it out yet, <coughs> the face in the rock is God, Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in that face of God is the face of Jesus Christ. And yes, he's coming back someday. And you and I should look <coughs> for his coming every day. But just like this story here and the story of Moses last week, The more time we spend in that book and that looking glass, looking at God's face, face to face, the more like this little story, we take on the features, the character, the attitude, the very appearance of Christ, and people see that in our face. In time we grow up into Him, and we take on His character, His features, His characteristics of the face in the rock. Stephen Olford was a great preacher. He's dead now. I used to always enjoy him. He wasn't, he wasn't a great 
fireball of a preacher, but he always had great content. And I heard him preach one time on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it should affect you and me. Never forgot it. I don't remember the whole sermon, but I remember the one thing that stuck with me. He said this. He said, did you ever go out on a bright sunny day with no sunglasses on or nothing? And for just like 10 seconds, stare right at the blazing sun and look at that sun for as long as you can. And he said, you know what? When you turn away from it for the next 30, 40, 50 seconds, all you see is little suns. He says, that's exactly the way it ought to be with God's people. When the world sees us, they ought to see little sons. They ought to see the glory of God in your face and my face and your life and my life through the ministry, not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. Not just a doer of the word, but a doer of the work. And that's where the real witness and the real testimony and the real glory of God come from. The world sees us. They should be blinded by the glory of God in all they should see is Jesus Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, Father, we